Psalm 103. The Psalm of David. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works in righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He has made known His ways to Moses, His acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will He keep His anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from Him. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear Him. For He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it and it is gone. And its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him. And His righteousness to children's children to those who keep His covenant and remember to do His commandments. The Lord has established His throne in the heavens and His kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you His angels, you mighty ones who do His word, obeying the voice of His word. Bless the Lord, all His hosts, His ministers who do His will. Bless the Lord, all His works, in all places of His dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Father, we ask you today that you would help us to be honest about the ways that we find our worth and our value, our significance in life, on our performance, our achievements, and our successes. We thank you, Father, for the gifts that you've given us to do good things in this world, but we pray today that you would show us how you are greater than even those accomplishments and how you have given us the accomplishment that we need in Jesus that can give us the security, satisfaction, and significance that we long for. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Tim Keller quoting in an interview from Madonna. I think most of us in here still know who Madonna is. If you don't know some of you middle school girls, just think uh, Miley Cyrus before Miley Cyrus, right? The provocateur, the one who was doing the crazy stuff to get all the attention, but yet was super successful, super successful. I could uh, annoy you right now and sing a couple of her songs, but I won't do it. They're coming to my mind. But this is what Madonna said in this interview. She said, I have an iron will, and all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. So if you, knew, if you know Madonna, like she is an extreme performer and would push any limits right, to, to be successful, to gain attention. And she's saying the reason is, is because I always felt this, this deep feeling of inadequacy. She said, I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being, and then I get to another stage. 
and I think, I'm mediocre. I'm uninteresting. Again and again. She says, my drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre, and that's always pushing me, pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, and she was the top, even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. I wonder if any of us in here can relate with that. This struggle that I, I've got to do something, and I've got to top that so that I'm not just mediocre, so that I'm not insignificant, so that my life really counts, and so that I don't show myself to be the inadequate person deep down I feel that I am. The root of all of this really is this, this worship of performance. We could call it achievement, maybe even power, maybe influence. But we treat performance, we treat our achievement, we treat our success as the thing that we get our worth from, that we get our value from. And then we need to really distinguish this from an approval idol. Okay, sometimes these get confused. So if you have an approval idol, you might not necessarily care about being the best. You just want people to like you, right? So you want to do well so that you have a good relationship with someone, so that they come up and put their arm around you and say, you're one of us. We like you. The performance idol isn't always concerned with that. He, the performance idolater can be okay if everybody else in the room is sitting back thinking, you know, that guy, I don't always like him, but he's the best, Right? That's, that's the difference. Right? You might kind of like that everybody's irritated around you because they know you're the man or you're the woman. All right? This is the way it manifests itself different than an approval idolatry because at the heart, the core values of a performance idolater are success. They're winning. They're influence. They're recognition. They're respect. And all of us in here who are believers, we can even come up with biblical justifications for these things. Just like with all of the idols, we can attach Bible verses that sort of say, this is a good thing that I'm out to dominate the world and dominate others. But how we know these things aren't of the Spirit, how we can see that we take a good thing, like working hard and doing well, those are good things. Success isn't a bad thing, it's just a bad God. And the way we see that we've taken this good thing and made it into a God is when our lives are plagued with deep feelings of guilt. Deep feelings of inadequacy that often manifest themselves in a lot of anger, in a lot of frustration, in a lot of discontentment, and in a lot of envy. So how do I know where this has gone off the rails is when my life now is plagued with guilt, right? I'm inadequate because I didn't do enough or I didn't do it well enough. I'm frustrated because everyone else is getting in the way of me accomplishing my goals and I'm envious when I see anyone else doing something I think is better. These emotions lead to deceit for some, to image guarding for others, or to this view of I'm just a realist and so I'm depressed. I'm overworking. And all of my relationships are merely based on an agenda instead of just being and loving one another. And if you're here this morning, God has a lot of compassion for you. 
He's not here to just heap more guilt on you to say, okay, you know, the performance idolater is going to hear this and say, all right, I got to go do this better now. No, he, he wants you to, to hear that he knows the burden that you are carrying. He knows that you live with this sense of hyper-responsibility that maybe other people can't understand. He knows what it's like for you to live with a lack of intimacy with others that maybe you feel is a luxury you don't get to enjoy. He knows how hard it is for you to face the prospect of being humiliated. How you struggle with mediocrity, being ordinary, or like Madonna said, inadequate. He knows how hard you are on yourself. And for those of us in here who live around or maybe are performance idolaters, let's have sympathy, because ever how hard they are on you for not getting on board, they're probably a hundred times harder on themselves. So your little interactions with them where they're making you feel like you're not good enough or haven't done enough, that's probably how they live all day long telling themselves, I'm not good enough, I've not done enough. It's good news. You don't have to keep on. You can be set free, maybe not in a day, Right? The way that we view is how we grow as Christians here is not, you know, we're just going to say some kind of prayer or I'm, somebody else is going to do something and voila, all right, I never have this struggle again. But you can grow progressively, step by step, day by day, as you put your eyes on Jesus and his finished work in your place and as we dare to believe that because God is gracious, we don't have to perform to earn our worth. Because God is gracious, we don't have to perform to prove ourselves. This is really, really good news. We're going to think about this through the lens of Psalm 103 today. So back to the beginning of this psalm, we ask the question, these four questions to help us learn how to think through the gospel. Who is God? What has He done? Who are we? What should we do? And so we did this each week. We're going to do this again today. So the first thing we see in verses 1 through 5, who is God? God is gracious. But the lie that many of us have, sometimes often because of our religious upbringing, is that God is a God who's sort of holding the scales, right? You've got your good works, and you've got your bad works. You've got your good performance and your bad performance. And if I want to be accepted by God, then I've got to do enough good things to get those scales to kind of tip in the direction of the good. This is how maybe your relationships were with your family growing up. Or maybe your relationships even with people in your church growing up. Or maybe if you didn't grow up in a Christian home or you're not even a believer now. This is how it works for you in your workplace with anyone in authority. It's this life of the scales. right? I've got to do more good than bad, so therefore I am valued, I am worthy, I am accepted here. This is your view of God. Or you're just playing God. And that's how you view yourself. You've got your to-do list of ten things to do today. If it's going to be a good day, I get six done at least. And I'm still going to feel guilty if I don't get all ten done. But if I only get four done, you know, there's, you don't want to live with me. What's the truth that sets us free? It's the truth of Psalm 103. 
That rhymed, and I didn't even mean to do it. We're going to just skip to verse 2. Notice, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. The first thing we see here is that God is gracious as a giver. You see, a performance idolater can begin to believe the lie that everything they have in their life is something that they earn. It's something they gave themselves. This is a type of pride that is, is, is not just destructive to others. It hurts a person's own soul. They never take time to remember that everything they have that is good has ultimately come from God. A life of remembrance and thanksgiving can flow out of this remembrance that all the benefits that we have in our life are from Him. If you're a performance idolater, it's probably because you're good at stuff. And that's not a bad thing. God wants you to be good at stuff. But the reason you're gifted isn't because you have just sort of conjured up this greatness within you. God has given you those gifts. Your giftedness, your good performances, your successes shouldn't lead you to the worship of yourself, but should remind you, wow, God is gracious. I didn't deserve to be gifted in this way. But also, He graciously forgives. Verse 3, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases. There is nothing that we could do to earn God's forgiveness. And yet, He graciously has forgiven us. There's nothing that we could do to overcome sickness, death. Only God can do that through Jesus. Ultimately at His return, and sometimes by His grace, even breaking into this present time. He graciously crowns us, verse 4, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. Performance idolaters love awards and rewards. And God, through Jesus, is the one who graciously crowns us with a crown, a significance, a status, an award, a reward, a recognition, a status that nothing in this world could compare with. Verse 5, who graciously satisfies us and supplies us with energy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. You see, all of your energy to get things done, even that is a gift from God. All the satisfaction you find in doing work and doing it well, that is a gift from God. This is what we mean when we say that God is gracious. It's all from Him. He loves you. He wants you to have those gifts. He wants you to do good work. But He doesn't want you to forget that it's all from Him. Who is God? The God of grace. Most of us in here are familiar with the story of the prodigal son. We have this son who basically goes to his dad and he says, Dad, you know what? I'm, I just wish you were already dead so I could have my inheritance now. And so the dad's like, okay. I'm not dead, but if you want to treat me as dead, if you like my stuff more than me, I'll just go ahead and give it to you. 
So he gives his younger son all, all of his inheritance. Probably had to go off and sell land that had been in the family for a long time because the son didn't care about the relationship, didn't care about the place. He just wanted the money. He just wanted the stuff. He just wanted the reward. And so he gives it to him. And this son goes out and he just, just squanders it all. Just wastes it all. And one day he's eating with the pigs because now he's basically homeless, destitute, all of his friends have left him that he had because when his money ran out, they ran out. And he thinks, you know, my dad's got servants who are living better than me. If I just go back and say, I'm going to work for you, then he'll take care of me. So we have this image of the most beautiful images in all of the Bible and really all of history of this son coming back home, he's practicing his repentance speech. How am I going to say this? How can, I, how can I perform this repentance in just the right way? How can I show just enough sorrow? How can I say the, the right sinner's prayer or whatever it may be so that my dad will accept me? And instead it says the father is out looking for his son to return every day. And instead of the dad, this is how often we view God especially if you're a performance idolater, he's standing back with his arm crossed saying, show me what you got. If you grew up in sports, right? This might have been how your coaches were. This might have been how your dad was, right? Show me. Prove it. Show me you're valuable. Show me you're worthy. Show me you can get it done. But instead, God, instead of standing back saying, you deserve what you're getting, and now you're going to have to come back and earn it off, Get the record right. It says this dad, this father, sees him from afar and runs and basically tackles him and says, you're home. Before he even can get his speech out, the father already sees this work in the heart of the son to make him come back humble and repentant. And he welcomes him. And he's done nothing puts a ring on his finger and he says, kill the fattened calf. We're having the biggest party we've ever had. What we often forget is there's an older brother in this story. The older brother never left town. The older brother stayed and did what he was supposed to do. So the other brother's ticked off now. Because this is not how the world's supposed to work. The older brother represents the religious Pharisee, and he lives in all of us at times. I did what I was supposed to do. You never threw a party for me, Dad. Look at this, your son, who went away and wasted everything. And now you're going to just welcome him back. All right. You're a dumber old man than I thought you were. Father shows his grace maybe even more strongly than to the younger son and the older son when he looks at him and he says, Son, everything I have is yours, and it always has been. Why don't you come into the party? You see, the older son was using the father as much as the younger son. 
The older son was using the father because he didn't really care about having his relationship. He just cared about having him as a way to show that he was good, that he was deserving. And this display of God's grace revealed his entitlement, revealed his idolatry of his own performance in a way that shown that he didn't really understand who his father was. Let's think out loud for a, for a second. How does your view of God as gracious shape how you view your performance? If you're new with us, sometimes we do this. So, anybody, how does your view of God as gracious or not gracious shape the view you have of your own performance? It's got like this sort of this, again, it's the scale sort of mindset, right? If I'm doing right, he welcomes me. Anybody else? I remember in my younger days, and probably still do this, but especially before this started to become real to me, when I would commit some pretty big sins and then later feel convicted over it, it would be like, all right, I'm going to sit down and read a whole book of the Bible. And I remember this staying up one night and like, I'm reading the book of Acts because this was a really big sin I committed, so I'm going to have to have a really big sort of way to work this off. The problem is, when you're like me, and you keep blowing it, eventually you're going to get depressed and in despair because you realize there ain't no way that I can start to check all that off. And then for those of us who are successful, who don't trip over, then we can often find ourselves in the older brother status of self-righteousness. is very important. Who God is, we understand Him as gracious. It's the only thing that's going to help free us from this idol of performance. And some of us, this is ingrained in our stories from a young age, whether they intended it or not. Maybe our parents sort of, sort of communicated this, either vocally or backgrounds, like, you're only as valued as you perform well. Whether in school, in sports, or just in chores around the house. Others of us are exhausted by the rat race of life. Some of you are having a good day until you get on Facebook. Maybe, why do we do it even sometimes, right? Some of us wake up in the mornings and before we get out of bed, right, we're scrolling through and seeing how everybody else has it better. I mean, they're all lying, right? 
Right? I'm the perfect father. I'm the perfect mom. I'm the perfect professional. I'm the perfect fill in the blank. And then you're just sitting there like, I suck. I stink. Sorry, don't use that word, kids. You know, I'm, why do they have it all and I have nothing? See, it takes boldness. When we say God is gracious, we're not throwing out some sort of Christianese, sort of like blah, blah, blah church talk. We need to see this because God is gracious. We don't have to perform. But it's not just in who He is. It's in, in what He's done. And so everything will just will flow out of this and the rest of this psalm. So we just sort of trek through these pretty quickly. So in verses 6 through 10, we see who, not only what, who God is, but what God has done. The lies that we believe behind what God has done is, I must prove myself. I've got to prove myself. And who do we want to prove ourselves to? We want to prove ourselves to others, right? We want to show I'm adequate, I'm enough. For some of us, we want to prove ourselves to God. We want to show Him that we're serious, that we're good enough. But for the performance side of it, or really it often just boils down to yourself. I've got to prove myself to myself. We believe within our hearts, that our worth is conditional. That it's not just what have I done, but what have I done for me lately? And it'll never be finished. But the good news is, the Lord works righteousness. Is that God is at work. Some of you, if you struggle with this, are already thinking, is this going to just make me lazy? Is this just going to make me do poor work? No, we're pointing to what God has done. God does good work. The best work. He works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. For David. For Israel. We see He makes known His ways to Moses. He acts. His acts. What He does to the people of Israel. We see in verse 8, He's merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He's this perfect balance of both action and compassion. In verses 9 and 10, we see His grace. Not only in His identity, but in His work. He will not always chide, nor will He keep His anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. This is the good news that David had to tell himself again and again. I mean, he's king, right? He needs to get it done. He needs to get it done well. But he saw his sin again and again in some big and bold ways. And he had to be reminded is that it's ultimately the Lord who gets the work done. All of us in here are in some ways maybe oppressed, but all of us in here are also in some ways oppressor. And it's the Lord who is the only one who can work that out perfectly. But this good news we see points us not just to David and to Israel, but beyond to our greater hope that we have in the life of Jesus. If this is going to penetrate our hearts, if we are going to grow and be broken free from the bondage of our performance idolatry, then we have got to keep our eyes on the one who lived the most free and full life and yet got the greatest work in the world accomplished. Nobody got the job done like Jesus. 
But I want to ask you a question, and we can think out loud on this. Was Jesus a success in his life by the world's standards? Yes or no, and why? Okay, so Jesus didn't meet expectations. Was he a success during his life on earth by earthly standards? Why or why not? Melanie says no. Why not? Yeah. Yeah, so he didn't, yeah, he didn't meet expectations. He didn't do it the way everybody wanted him to. I didn't mean to cut you off. What else? Yeah, he's got about these 12 guys, you know, some are more blue collar, some are more white collar, but even the, the tax collectors are kind of hated people. He, he gets big crowds, and then what does he do when he gets them? He just keeps telling the truth, and they all leave. He's mocked by his family. And he dies naked on a cross. And this is supposed to be the king? I mean, that, this guy does not look like, like a success. I mean, let's be honest. And yet he lived with a greater joy than any of us could ever imagine. I mean, we see him going from one scene to where he is, he is performing just these great works, and the next scene, he looks like an ultimate failure. The next scene, he's just chilling at somebody's table, eating and talking. I mean, it's just beautiful. He really did not live according to the way of the world. The thing that we're all trapped in. I've got to do this and prove myself. And he just beautifully shows us this picture of somebody who walks through life not having to prove himself. And he didn't do that to make us feel bad. He did that for us. He did that because he knew from the very beginning in the Garden of Eden, this is what was coming from humanity, was this desire to do, to prove ourselves through what we do, to show that we're important, to show that we're significant, to show that we're adequate, and to do it without God. He came because he knew that rebellion is in our hearts, is that we don't want to receive our significance from God. We want to achieve it through our own work. He knew we would never be set free from that on our own, so he said, I'm going to come and do that for them. And so he went to the cross purposefully, intentionally, to die for the rebellion of our performance idolatry. To take upon himself all the, the self-image promotion that we put out there. 
to take upon himself all that guilt that you feel, all that discontentment, frustration, envy, and anger. He took that judgment upon himself for you. And then he rose from the grave as the greatest success in the history of the world. And he calls us now into that. But the only way we're going to experience that is through being set free. It's through believing the truth that Jesus is better and by actually humbling ourselves to receive His record in our behalf so that we don't live lives believing we've got to accomplish our identity, but we live with the banner hanging over us that Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. It is finished. If you're a performance idolater, that may be the phrase you've got to live with in your life. It is finished. Your status, your significance, your adequacy, your importance has been everlastingly secured in the already finished work of Jesus, so you do not have to prove yourself anymore. You don't have to compete with people that you know or these imaginary people out there that you see online or in the world. You don't have to. You don't have to compare yourself to them. You don't have to one-up them. You don't have to better them. You can be yourself and you can work hard and you can do good work and then it can be mediocre sometimes and you can go to sleep and get up and try harder the next day not to prove yourself but to glorify God. You see, this is the good news. The record of Jesus has been given to you. Who are you? Verses 11 through 14. We don't have time to, to knock all these out. Who you are is not based on what you do. This is the logic of the gospel. The logic of the world, who I am, is based on what I do. The logic of the gospel is what I do is based on who I am. Who are you? You're loved. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love towards those who fear Him. You may have had relationships where you had to earn love in your life. It's not how it works with God. You don't have to earn His love. You don't have to keep His love. It's a steadfast covenant love. Who are you? You're not only loved, you're righteous. Forgiven. He's removed your transgressions as far as the east is from the west. That is, they're, they're gone. It's the image here. The righteousness of Christ is now on you. You don't have to earn your standing before God. It's not going to change. If you are in Christ, whatever boneheaded, stupid thing you go do this afternoon, it's not going to change. Feels too good to be true. You're given compassion, verses 13 and 14. He shows compassion to His children. He knows your frame. That is, he, kn he knows your capacity, your limitations. He knows how you look and you say, oh, I wish I had all those people's energy and all their talents and all their time and all their ability. He's not looking at you and saying, you know, I wish you did too. I wish you were enough like they are. 
No, He knows you and He loves you and He's chosen you and He's forgiven you and He's gifted you to be you and to enjoy life in His presence and for His glory. The Olympics are on. I haven't got to watch a lot of it other than curling, that intense sport. Right? It is very interesting, I guess. Think about the pressure these Olympians have. Is that the right word, Olympians? Olympians have to be under. I saw somebody talking about this the other day. It's like, I got one shot every four years to prove myself. In some of these sports, we're talking a matter of seconds. One, one Olympian said this one year, I have ten seconds to justify my existence. I have 10 seconds to vindicate my life. Now that's pressure. It may be close to how some of us live sometimes. So. The two biblical words for this are justification and vindication. There's some of you in here who feel like I'm going to have to do something to justify my existence to validate my being here on this earth. If you're a student, it may be your academics, it may be sports, it may be a dating relationship. If I have that, it will vindicate my existence. You're dead again. If you're a single person, it may be the job, the relational conquest. I've got to justify not just my existence, I've got to justify or vindicate this season of my life. If you're young and married, it may be, I've got to have this house. I've got to take care of this debt. We've got to have this kind of experience before we have children to justify our existence. If you're a mom, especially if you're home with your kids a lot, your life feels like it's on repeat. Is my life doing laundry and picking up stuff every day? I've got to do something to justify my existence. If you're a dad... Dreaming away, dabbling, planning. Some parents, you're looking to your kids to justify your existence. They better be good at school. They better be good at sports. They better at least be kind if they're not, if they're not going to do those things. And comparison becomes the great joy thief in our life. We hurt ourselves and we hurt everyone around us because we are believing the lie that who we are is based on what we do. And God wants to set us free. Do you have an identity that can handle success or failure? That's really the big question here. Do you have an identity strong enough that can handle both success and failure? Do you have an identity big enough that can handle times when you're extraordinary and times when you're just ordinary. Because the psalm ends with this vision of what it would look like. Verses 15 through 21. Our days are like grass. Right? You feel that. This, I ain't got much of a life here. It's going to come and go. But the one free from performance idolatry can say would Verse 17, the steadfast love of the Lord is eternal. 
what he says, my place in him. This is where I'm going to find my security. I'm not going to find security in my success. I find my security in the steadfast, everlasting, eternal love and relationship of God. The one who does keep his covenant. The one who does have a kingdom that rules over all. And so we can say in verses 20 through 21 and really verse 1, bless the Lord. And this is why we skip verse 1 so that we end here. To bless the Lord, that's one of those churchy words. Bless, what does that even mean? In this context, it means to speak well of Him. To bless the Lord is to speak well of Him. To praise Him. To praise His holy name is to speak well of the One who is incomparable, who is uniquely great, who is not ordinary, and who is not mediocre. And the reason this strikes so hard at the heart of the performance idolater is if you are honest, is you want people to bless your holy name. You want people to speak well of you and to say how uniquely awesome you are in comparison to others. And that is an enslaving, destructive view of the world. That may give you some temporary joys, but it'll leave you like Madonna saying, I've got to top it. I've got to do the next thing. We're like the kid playing with a toy, right? And we love this toy until we see the kid over here with another toy that's better. And now we don't like it anymore. You've got your life. God's given you good things. And then you see somebody else has both. And you're like, I want both too. And your joy is taken away. And we imagine freedom for performance idolaters. It's security. And the finished work of Christ, instead of security based on your accomplishments. I mean, hey, if you get on top, guess who you become? You're the New England Patriots, right? Nobody likes you. <laughs> Sorry if you're a Patriots fan. I don't mind the Patriots. Right? Success it and all it's cracked up to be. You can perform in the spirit versus the flesh. Not walk around with this burden of having to always do more, do better, try harder. You can be humble, be ordinary, be obscure. You can have joy before God and others. You can do good works versus dead works that in the end God's going to say, you just did that for yourself anyway. You can live with the promise that you are justified, you are vindicated, you are validated, you are important. Not because of what you've done, but because of who you are in Christ.